Well, welcome everyone. Welcome, Mercy One. Welcome, Mercy Road Church. How are we doing this morning? We good? It's 68 beautiful degrees. Humidity's low. Outdoor church is, is going great here, and we're glad that you've joined us. If I have not had the privilege to meet you, my name is Pastor Mike Lotzer. I'm the lead pastor. A special welcome to some friends from Cross of Christ Church that I see here, and we're, we're glad that you're, you're with us on this beautiful Sunday morning. Say, I was fishing, um, I guess it was two days ago, and I saw something on the water, and you know, when you see a fish jump out of the corner of your eye, you go there, that's where you drive the boat, that's how I think it works. But when you see that same thing over and over, you're thinking, wow, is there a fish jumping in the same spot? I get closer and I net a huge northern pike. And what had happened is he had tried to eat a sunfish and it got caught in his gills, a little too large for, for his mouth. And so we pulled the, the boat up and we netted the fish and we put this big northern in there flopping around and the sunfish is flopping around and my friend and I kind of extract the fish from its mouth. And you know, fish aren't really capable of expressions, but I swear both of these fish were just terrified. I couldn't tell who is more afraid, the northern or the sunfish. Uh, and, and it just gives me a picture. It brought to mind, that's kind of the same look I've seen in some some of the people I love and do life with in this season. Fear, in other words, is on the rise. Would you agree with that? There's a lot of fear, anxiety, the kind of fear that would be induced if you're in the jaws of a northern pike. And I, I actually did a little research, and there's actually 10 top phobias of all time. The first one's really strange. Number 10, the fear of holes, triphobia. Some people can't even have sponges in their house. They see those little holes and it freaks them out. That's a strange one. Uh, aerophobia, the fear of flying. If you didn't have that before the pandemic, you know, that now, now we're all a little afraid to fly. The fear of germs, misophobia, we all definitely have that. Even, even those of us who, who uh, take less precautions, I, I think we all have a healthy fear of germs. Claustrophobia, I've got that one. I don't like small spaces. I, I think I developed that in the Army. Uh, thanks, basic training for that one. Astrophobia, the fear of thunder and lightning. Uh, cinephobia, the fear of dogs. I don't have that. I do, I'm afraid of cats, though. I think a cat would eat you if it was bigger than you. A agrophobia, the fear of open or crowded spaces. Those of you sitting on the periphery maybe have that. Uh, acrophobia, the fear of heights. Uh, uh, the fear of snakes. I don't even know how to pronounce that one. And then arachnophobia is number one spider, who knew? So that was true before 2020, and we were kind of a fearful society. But how much more is it true now? And that's what we've been really looking to the scriptures in this summer series. We're trying to get lessons, practical wisdom from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians, the church in Philippi, and we call these lessons, lessons from lockdown, because Paul had to face so many of the same things we have to face Fear is certainly one of them. One of my favorite paintings of the Apostle Paul is uh, Rembrandt. He, he does this wonderful job of depicting the Apostle Paul, and it's an aging apostle, and he's in prison in the painting. And symbolically, in the painting, there's this massive book, probably meant to illustrate Paul's writings, his holy scriptures that he has collected. But it's so big in Rembrandt's painting that it's almost saying to the viewer, the Apostle Paul is at a, at a stage at the end of his life. He's so broken and beat down, he can't even lift that book. It would almost be impossible for him to crack that book. He's so weak 
And a lot of people and scholars even then think that the Apostle Paul may have gone blind or mostly blind. And so Rembrandt paints him kind of looking fearful and adjusting his gaze. And behind the book is a massive sword representing the, the looming impending fear of death that he had to live with. He was on death row as a political prisoner and, and Rembrandt is putting that sword in the picture to remind the viewer in an age where a lot of people couldn't read the scriptures that basically that would be the sword that eventually would kill the Apostle Paul. He was put to death for proclaiming the name that is above all names, for preaching the gospel. But then we read the, the letter to Philippians that the man wrote from prison, this bewildered, terrified man with the sword looming over him and the book of God's scripture that's too heavy for him to even lift. And the, the Rembrandt picture just doesn't line up with the, the man we meet in the letter because there's not a hint of fear. If anything, the letter is remarkably chock full of joy. Last week, we, we looked at that part in chapter two of the letter where the apostle Paul said, have the same mind as Christ, the same worldview and attitude. He didn't grasp onto his divinity, but rather he became a, a slave, a servant to all of us. And we should model this. Or he's modeled it, but we should mimic his behavior. We should, we should have great humility. But then it goes on to say, because of that, because of what Jesus did, God elevated him. And I'd like to read that part of it. It comes from Philipp Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. It, it makes one wonder, did, he, did Paul just come up with that inspired by the Spirit? I mean, some of scripture is, is that's how it works. God. God speaks through human beings and they write, but, but a lot of scripture is echoing previous parts of scripture. In this case, what we just read, this is Paul not able to crack that book in his aged, weakened state. He's remembering Isaiah 45, 23. What does Isaiah 45, 23 say? It's God talking about himself, saying, by myself I have sworn... My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will confess and swear that I am the Lord. So he's, he's reaching back into his early years of memorization. And he's saying, you know, there is one creator, God. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And the very thing that I memorized as a kid that God has a name that's above every name and, and every knee's gonna bow with that reality, every tongue's gonna confess that God is God and you're not God and I'm not God. That's being expressed through Jesus Christ. And one day, eventually, the story will end with every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Christ is Lord. If you're taking notes, we have, we have some sermon notes for you if, you if you'd like to follow along. You can raise your hand if you don't have one. Someone will be around. Fear is flourishing. We've established that. But, but secondly, and this is just a really helpful lesson from lockdown, courage is not the absence of fear, but the assurance of future joy. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the assurance 
of future joy. That, I believe, describes the phenomenon in the Apostle Paul. While he's in chains, how can he be so fearless? Well, it's not that he didn't feel fear. The Rembrandt painting is accurate in the sense he was a human being. He felt fear, and he didn't fake that he wasn't afraid, but instead he, he fixed his whole attention and his mind and his hope on the anticipation of future joy. So courage in the age of the coronavirus is not just kind of puffing yourself up and saying, the virus could never get me, could never get a family member, it'll all be fine, I'm sure God will never let anything bad happen to me. That's really bad theology. That's psychology, pop psychology maybe, and maybe it works a little bit. But, But think of John the Baptist. Jesus said, you know, as far as people born of women, so everybody, this one's the best. And God let him go to prison and be beheaded. You think of Jesus himself. He's the perfect image of the Father, perfectly full of grace and truth, love poured out itself, and he suffers willingly. There is a myth out there that when we're afraid as Christians, what we need to do is we basically need to say, God would never let anything bad happen to me. He loves me, and that means he'll always protect me from every adverse thing. Cancer will never happen to me. Coronavirus will never happen to me. I'll never lose any money in the stock market. Nothing bad could happen to my loved one. It's simply not true. We live in a sin-broken world, and, and, and if you go through life, if I go through life trying to puff ourselves up and saying, I'm not afraid, I don't need to be afraid because it'll all be perfect all the time, I'll never experience pain. We're, we live a lie if we live like that, and it won't work. It might work for a very short sprint, but it will never work for the long run. Eventually, those fears will begin to cripple you, but, but that's not what Paul does. What Paul does is he focuses on this eternal truth that in the end, no matter how the temporary situation plays out for Paul, whether the sword gets him or the broken bones or old age or the persecution, whatever bad, nasty thing has happened or could happen, he, he comforts himself and he quells his fears by just reciting Isaiah and contextualizing it into, into Christ. He said, aha, but Paul, remember, Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, of course, you might, you might be logical enough to see that this wouldn't be a consolation for some people. In fact, if you deny Christ, if you think he's just one of many good options that you could go with, if you think he's just a good teacher, a nice guy, but not actually your creator coming for you, inner sectoring human history, pursuing you with all love and passion, dying in your place to make your life an eternal life, eternally right with God. If you deny all that, and if it's really true that one day the reality is going to become so blindingly obvious that Jesus is who Jesus said he was, and that one day you'll kneel in his presence, this could cause regret. This could cause weeping and gnashing of teeth. I missed it. The whole point of my existence, I missed. The very source of everything I ever enjoyed, all good 
all beauty, all truth, it was Jesus Christ. And the only time I uttered his name is when I stubbed my toe. I missed it. I trivialized it. I went to church a few times, but I never really understood that the whole purpose of, of reality itself is to kneel in front of, to praise, to declare Jesus Christ. That's really what Paul believes, and it gives him something like a supernatural ability to move beyond his fear. He can acknowledge it, and then he can move right beyond it. Whatever is going on in your life right now, I wonder what it would look like if you started to contextualize that. I mean, on a scale of 1 to 100, how afraid of you are of the virus? Some of you, it might be really high. And, and your mind plays tricks on you, and you lay in bed, and you think, well, what if I were to get that? And I heard there might be some lung damage. And, well, my friend says it's a hoax, so maybe I won't. But, you know, my other friend, what if I get that? What if you took that fear and you said, I'm not going to pretend I'm not afraid, but I'm going to remind that fear, I'm going to remind my own heart, preach to myself today, and I'm going to say, hey, every knee's going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He's coming for me. He's going to make all things right in the end. And so I can admit I'm afraid. I can even let my mind go to the worst case scenario. And I can just sit in that worst case scenario and say, so what? If it doesn't change the fact that I will kneel in the presence of my Savior, my champion, and that will be the best moment of my life, and that will only be the beginning of a crescendo of joy that will last into eternity in the presence of Jesus Christ, my Master, in a remade world, then what do I really need to be afraid of? I can be realist. I can be very realistic and say, there are some things that are causing me fear and anxiety right now, but they don't have to have the run of the house. And Paul is modeling this. It's, it's an incredible thing. I remember in the military when this concept was partially explained to me, I, I was afraid of heights. Uh, I still am. They don't, I don't love them. But, you know, in the military, you really have to do a lot of stuff, you know, jump out of helicopters and climb walls headfirst down. And so it's not a great situation for someone who's afraid of heights. Um, but I remember a drill sergeant once said to me, you're never going to get rid of that fear. You're just going to have to move past that fear. You're going to have to live with that fear. And I, I kind of figured out how to do that. But that's just climbing a little wall. I think the fear that a lot of you are struggling with right now in 2020, it's way worse than a fear of heights. It's way worse than claustrophobia. It's, it's a deep and abiding fear. And it, it just kind of dominates your thought patterns. And when you watch the news, how many of you have just turned off the news because your fear kind of got up to the, your throat a little bit and you just go, oh my gosh, what if this political party wins? What if this pl political party wins? What if we, we defund the police? What if we never heal racial tensions? What if the economy tanks? What if, what if, what if? And you shut the remote and you have a, a choice. We have a choice in that moment. What do we console ourselves with? Well, what did the Apostle Paul? The lesson from lockdown from the Apostle Paul is to simply say that eventually every single person will bend the knee to God, will confess loyalty to God. Some in regret, some running into reality, kind of bumping into reality that they have denied, but 
but for those who are in Christ, who have trusted in the forgiving love of Jesus, this will be the vindication of your entire existence. It will heal every single sorrow. Anything that God allowed you to go through that was painful for you, in that moment, in his presence, kneeling before your creator who's come for you, who understands you fully, who knows exactly what you've gone through, it will be perfect. That perfect love will heal you. And if we can envision it, if we can envision that, and if we can even start kneeling now in that posture of worship, it's the simple act of kneeling in worship and confession to Jesus Christ as Lord. That and that alone will get us through the fear. You know, the story of David and Goliath is a pretty uh, obvious example of someone overcoming their fears. And I was listening to a talk recently, um, and the preacher quoted Robert Alder, who's an Old Testament scholar, and he said, most people read David and Goliath wrong. Most preachers look at that and they say, well, there was, there was David, and he was the little guy, and he just trusted that, that God would protect him, and so he just did it, and that's what we have to do. We just have to stand up to our giants in our life and trust that God will deliver us with whatever we have in our hand, and, and that's the Christian life. And Robert Alder, he said, you don't know how to read Old Testament literature if that's what you're thinking. It's actually offering two different approaches to courage. They're contrasts. One is Goliath. And wh wh why is Goliath courageous? Well, because he's nine feet tall. He's got the high-tech armor. Uh, it says his spear and javelin are 125 pounds, so, you know, he's got that going for him. And, and, and confidence is an understatement. If you read 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath, he has just a plain arrogance, right? That is the courage, the counterfeit courage that is being peddled today in pop psychology, in the government. And that is, if we're not very careful, what we'll try to console ourselves with today. Counterfeit courage. When you're afraid about how the future will turn out, how your loved ones will fare, the world that your kids are being born into, your 401k, your health, you fill in the blank, your fear, you're, you're told, just be more like Goliath. Just have better armor. Stand up straighter. Put on more muscle mass. Make sure you can defend yourself. And if you can just Goliath up, then you can overcome any fear. But Robert Alder, this Old Testament scholar, said the contrast comes in David. And David is the, the word for that in Hebrew and then later in Greek is champion. He is the champion. This model of, hey, rather than getting a whole army fighting and everyone dying, why don't we have one champion fight another champion? And, and so there's two champions. One is Goliath and he's got the counterfeit courage. The other is a very different type of champion who wins through weakness, not through strength. He's like a prepubescent teenager. And he wins by completely depending on God in the outcome. He just said, I cannot stand anyone cursing the name that is above every other name. It's just not right. And so whether God delivers me or not, I'm going to move past my fear. Somebody has to. What would it look like if you had a little more of the courage that David has? What would it look like in your life if essentially you just said, God, it's all up to you. 
on my own, I, I really can't overcome this fear. I can't change the situation. I can't change the broken world. I can't come up with a vaccine. And so I'm going to stop pretending like I'm Goliath or stop just puffing myself up. And I'm just going to open-handedly give you what I have and just trust that you will be faithful for the outcome. And when I say faithful, God, I don't mean that you'll do exactly what I think you should do. I mean that I'll let you be God and I'll stop being God. That's kind of what David is doing. He's just saying, you know, how about if we let the name that is above every name, how about if, how about if we let that one be God? And what would it look like if we were able to do that? Now, that word champion is really fascinating because, of course, David and his whole life only points to the greater champion in Jesus Christ. And that's really the gospel. If you've never heard it explained this way, and if you've heard it explained a thousand times, listen one more time because it's worth it. Remind your own heart what the gospel is. Essentially, there was a champion like David who went out on a field of battle and he didn't just fight for you, he fought as you. I mean, David was representing the whole Israelite army in 1 Samuel 17. If he were to lose, the whole Israelite army would have been enslaved by the Philistines, one of the most cruel people in the ancient world. And if he wins, regardless of the performance of any other Israelite soldier, regardless of their failures or their strengths, if David wins, if the champion wins, he wins the cause for everybody. I was talking with a friend recently who, who had some fear about, can, can somebody lose their salvation? And some of us, if we're honest, that's our deepest fear. Fear of heights are nothing compared to this idea of what if, what if because I'm struggling with sin in my life and I can't beat this habit or hang up or this hurt or whatever, what if God really hasn't saved me? And what if I won't be in the presence of God forever with him? And this is a fear that I've run into for a lot of people. And I validate that that's a painful fear, but I want to just remind us that the way we get past that fear, if that fear comes up, is we look to the champion and we remind ourselves how this gospel thing works. The gospel is not God loves you when you clean up your life and you do a good job like a little good religious boy or a little good religious girl and you sin less than the guy sitting to your left and right and finally God has said, you know, pretty good. It's a B minus, but that's, that's quite an improvement from where you've been, so, so now you can be with me forever. That is not the gospel. That is how religion works. That is not how God, who has the name above every name, works. The gospel, the good news, is that there was a champion who fought for you and as you on the field of eternal sin on that battlefield. And he just said, hey, if I win, all these people who identify with me, they're free. And if I lose, we're all slaves. All hope is lost. And he won. Did he win as Goliath? No. He won as David by perfectly submitting his total trust to God, his father, and saying, I don't want to die on the cross. I don't want to experience complete alienation and spiritual hell on behalf of all of creation who would trust in me. But if there's no other way, if this is how I have to be the champion, then so be it. And he did, and he won that battle for us. 
Christian, are you, are you struggling with your identity? Do you, do you sometimes wonder, what if on the other side of death, I'm not with Jesus? All you need to do is remember there was a champion who fought and won for you. He perfectly submitted his life to the Father in ways that you have not done, in ways that I have not done. And his perfection won the battle and the freedom for everybody else who is imperfect. He lived the life that you will not live. You will never live the perfect life. There's no perfect church, by the way. If you find one, please don't join it because you'll wreck it. There is a one perfect savior. There is one perfect champion. And when we start to grasp and remind ourselves over and over again that he actually won and he, he was my champion, my, represe- my representative, and that, that means I'm forever made right with this God who loves me enough to be my champion. There is no power in hell or on earth or outside of the earth that can change that. It is done. Now, if that is true, and it is, and I believe it with every fiber in my being, what posture could a human being take that would seem appropriate in response to such good news other than taking a knee? I know it's a bit confusing because in our culture right now, kneeling has become popular as a uh, way to show a protest. But that is not in keeping with the way human beings have looked at kneeling for the majority of human history. Kneeling has always been submission. It has always been a sign that you are in the presence of greatness, that no matter how hard you try, you will never be greater than the person you are kneeling in front of. And when people voluntarily kneel in the presence of a monarch or a king, they're saying, I'm yours, and you're my king, and you have my life and you have everything, and what you've done for me, and who you are to me, there's no other posture than just to kneel in worship, in adoration. And here's the best part, and here's what I'd like you to picture in your, in your mind. Picture one day kneeling, but then picture this moment where a hand gently touches your shoulder, your right shoulder, And the voice that you've longed to hear your entire life calls you by name and says, stand up, I I love you. And now the kneeling has turned into a full embrace. You're being held by the arms that shaped the universe, that have walked with you every moment of your life when you've never seen his presence. But in that presence, there's no other place that you would ever want to be because there's no other better place. You see, religion would picture a person kneeling kind of for all of eternity in submission, in deference to the monarch, like a, like a soldier, I suppose, or like, like a subject. Christianity goes so much further. The claim is that we start there by declaring there is a name above every other name and we, we confess our love and allegiance to him. But Jesus actually doesn't want us to only stay there. Jesus brings us in close, like the best father, like the best lover, like the best friend, the one that your heart has always 
kind of sensed around the corner but could never fully experience that perfect embrace. I, I don't know what you're struggling with, what type of fear. I, I'm pretty sure you have some fear. My, my fears are a little ADD-ish. I think God protects me by not being able to focus long enough on any one fear. I just, oh, well, that's kind of terrifying. Oh, look, another shiny fear, you know. Whether you've got a lot of them like me and you bounce around or you fixate on one, picture yourself kneeling in perfect adoration and worship and then picture his hand on your shoulder, picking you up, embracing you. And my senses, my deep experience, my personal experience, it drives fear away. It really does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this lesson from lockdown, this idea that fear is real and we, we have them, I have them. I pray for my brothers and sisters here watching online and in person and whatever they're afraid of right now. Would you just give them the ability to, to kneel mentally, maybe even physically right now, and just to, just to say to their own hearts, one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that there is one name that is above every other name, Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior, my God, my King. And as we anticipate the joy of that moment, the joy of that embrace, the rightness of kneeling in your presence, would it, would it act like, a, like an injection of courage in our hearts? Father, we don't want to be men and women who, who are knocked around by fear, who are paralyzed by fear, who don't tell other people about your great love because of fear, who don't do the things that you have put us on earth to do because of fear, who self-medicate because of fear, who, who live a trivial, distracted life because of fear. And so right now, I ask that you would help us to take a knee in worship. And as we are on our knees, would you give us courage from on high? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.